Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, August the 11th, 2021, and this is episode 2933, 2,933 times we've gotten together. It's a Wednesday, so we'll have an interview today. We have David Barnett today. Uh, David's going to talk to us about buying a business. That's what David kind of does as a profession. Not really buy businesses, but he consults with people buying and he consults with people selling. Think of it kind of like a real estate agent for businesses. That'd be one way you can think about it. This was a great discussion. When I got his uh, application, I'm like, we should really talk about this. Because this is something we maybe have talked about once in passing in 13 years. I know we've talked about selling a business. We did a dedicated episode of that. But we've never really talked about buying one. And this is something that I think is kind of a middle ground for a lot of people. That would like to own a business, but they're really not at a place in life or at a time in life or risk-adverse enough that they're willing to start with zero. Starting with zero and then having a business that's successful a few years later is daunting. And this is kind of another path toward business ownership. And so we're going to talk about what that date with David in just a minute. I'm going to tell you, this guy speaks at a high level. I'll t- I, I, I say something to him um, after his second, I think his second answer to one of my questions That's akin to similar. Basically, what I said is that sounded like sitting in in a, in a college classroom listening to a high level professor who actually knows what they're talking about lecture on on business principles. I mean, he's just outstanding. And even if you're never going to buy a business, I think you can learn a ton from this discussion today. We'll bring David on just a minute. Before we do, let's hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jam Bullion. Silver and gold belong in your investment planning. I, I believe that. And it doesn't have to be a lot, but I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 5% to 10% of net wealth in, in precious metals. Now, where are you going to buy your silver and gold? Well, you should buy it from Jam Bullion, not just because they sponsor the show you listen to, and some of you listen to me for years, because they have better pricing. An American Silver Eagle is an American Silver Eagle is an American Silver Eagle. That's what makes it fungible. They're all the same. So there's no reason to pay more than you have to. And JM Bullion constantly is selling below the price of like Monex, Apmex, and Lear Capital, the three biggest silver houses in, in the country. I even turned down Lear Capital. They wanted to be a sponsor. I'm like, I, no, I've got that. I've got that full. I can talk to the president of JM Bullion. Will you guys let me talk to your president or your CEO? They said, no. I said, well, then no. And uh, they give a discount. On silver and gold, there's some limits on it, how big and how much you can do it each month, but they do do a discount, and all orders ship free. So you pay less, you get free shipping, you get a discount, you get to support the company that supports the content you love. Why would you buy your silver or gold anywhere else? I just don't know. JMBullion.com, that's where you need to go. Next up today, the other precious metal, copper jacketed lead. You talk about a long-term relationship. Bulk ammo, I, I just looked up the records, been with us 10 years, a decade now. 
10 years we've, we've represented Bulk Ammo, and they have taken care of our audience. You order from them. If they have it in stock, that's the only way you're not going to have it like this week. Your ammo will ship so fast from Bulk Ammo when it shows up at your door and you hear a knock on your door. You'll be like, who, who the hell's there? And you'll be like, I, wow, because it, it's just so quick. You, you'd think you're getting it off Amazon Prime. If they sold ammo, that'd be interesting. But, yeah, I mean, it is that kind of lightning-fast shipping, excellent service. They also do a discount for MSB members, long-term supporter. And your gun without ammo, expensive club, guys. That's all that it is. With that, let's go ahead and uh, and dig on into this. Before we do that, I want to remind you, MSB is on sale, $30 uh, a month. For life, it locks in. If you uh, if you join the MSB this this week, uh, it's on sale until mo- close of business Monday next week. I start on a Monday, I end on a Monday usually. Um, remember, guys, I don't care if your dog ate your discount code or whatever. When I say a sale ends, a sale ends. That's part of having integrity. The discount code is give me thirty. G-I-V-E-M-E-3-0. Give me 30. You can get MSB 30 bucks a year. It's a hell of a deal. The lifetime memberships are gone. I did a small number. I actually did more than 10 because I made a commitment yesterday that if you emailed me by the end of the day, you were in. Um, and it's closed down now. And so you cannot buy the lifetime membership with crypto. Uh, you can only get the $30 deal. But if you want to pay with crypto, You can buy multiple years at $30 a year, and when your term is up, I will renew you at that $30, even if you do manual crypto. Everybody else, you know, the easy way is a debit card, uh, credit card, etc. Just pay online, auto renewal, $30 a year. And the way it works is if you get canceled by the system as a renewal failure or anything like that, I will get you back at your rate if that happens. If If you terminate your membership... Then you go back to the regular price if you want to come back. I uh, just wanted to remind you of that and, again, say thank you to everybody that became a lifetime member. I do that very, very limited, and that is now closed, and I probably won't happen again this year. If I do another lifetime membership sale, I might do one around Christmas and sell 10 more. That, that'll be about it. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into this. We're going to talk again about buying a business with David Barnett. He's been working with small businesses for over 20 years, helping them grow, help entrepreneurs buy and sell those businesses. He talks uh, at seminars and things like that as well. He's the author of eight books. You're going to find out he can get one of his books, an electronic copy, for free today. He's a hell of a guy. He's also been listening to this show for many years. And uh, I love when we get guests that come right out of the community that way. With that, hey, David, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jack. I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad to have you on. We're going to talk about buying a business. And I think that is actually a really great thing for people to consider. Not, you know, most people I think can run a business. Not everybody can build one from the ground up. There's a, there is a, uh, a certain thing that I think must be in the DNA to, to start with. There is nothing and now there's something. Um, so I think this is a really great topic, and we really haven't talked about it before. I think we did a show one time on selling a business, but never on buying one. So I'm glad you reached out with that. Before we get into that, though, who and what is a David Barnett? Tell us about you know who you are and how you got into doing what you're doing, man. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm one of those kids who grew up and uh, could not get enough of business. And so I had all the various childhood businesses you can think of, you know, mowing lawns and uh, I live in Canada, so snow removal, of course, in the wintertime is a big thing for money for teenagers to earn money with. 
and um, believed that if I went to university and studied business, that they would teach me how to be a businessman. And it, it took me about three years to realize there that what they were really trying to do is turn me into what I now call a, a Fortune 500 bureaucrat, uh, you know, one of those middle managers in a, in a big corporation. And when I got out of there, um, I did find what turned out to be a dream job. This was the, the mid-90s. And so I landed a job in sales with the Yellow Pages. And so I got to go and visit and meet with all of the owners and managers of all the businesses you see when you're driving around your town. And so I really got my small business education during those years. And back in those days, Yellow Pages was really critical. You know, if you typed plumber into Google in those days, you would get a plumber in California, no matter where in the world you were, because they hadn't figured out the local searching at that point. And so I got to sit down with these business owners and managers and ask them what kind of customer they wanted, uh, you know, the next time the phone rang or who they'd like to have coming through their door and got to learn about their different business models and how they made money and, and how they were successful. And while I did see that the, you know, the future wasn't great for the yellow pages, um, I, I started to look at different things and I, I left to start a business with a partner and I did that business with him for almost two years. And we had a pretty good start, um, but his heart wasn't in it. My heart wasn't in it. And instead of just closing, I got this idea, maybe I should try to find someone to take over this business. And that was the first business I was ever involved in selling. And it, it wasn't a tremendous amount of money. It wasn't, you know, a million dollar exit or anything like that. Um, we basically got a lot of our investment back out of it and, and we didn't have to liquidate the business. It, it, in fact, it's still open to this day. Um, but that gave me my first taste. My next business was in helping. I opened up a brokerage of business debt. So people who went to the bank and got to try to get a loan and were told no, they would then come and see me and I would try to help them out with capital leases, operating leases, uh, factoring facilities, which, which is the sale of accounts receivable, other kinds of commercial loans and mortgages. And so I was helping business owners uh, get financing for their business. And I started to meet people who were looking for money to buy existing businesses. And it was interesting because what I what I saw was a lot of really bad stuff going on. Um, intermediaries who really didn't have any idea what they were doing, trying to put deals together. Uh, people who were trying to buy or sell a business that didn't really have any understanding of a lot of the, the, the key factors we need to look at when we're looking at a business. And then the financial crisis happened in uh, 08, 09. And basically, uh, the majority of the people that I was accessing capital from went out of business. If you recall, Jack, during the financial crisis, there was something called asset-backed commercial paper uh, that created that big Wall Street problem. Yeah, a little, um, little problem. <laughs> yeah, well, I was at the end of the chain. So I was creating business loans, which got packaged up into these pools and and were sold off piecemeal to these individual bond investors. This is what these were the assets of the asset-backed commercial paper. And so when that crisis occurred, these intermediaries that were helping my clients went under. And I I realized I had to make a pivot. And I and I thought about those underserved people who were trying to make a deal. And so, you know, where I live, um, uh, I'm, I'm in the Maritimes in Canada. So here in New Brunswick, there are about three quarters of a million people. And there's a designation, a professional designation for helping people buy businesses. Um, and it's been around since the 70s. And I was the first person to ever get that designation in 2010. Just 
to show you how undeveloped this market is in a lot of places. Um, most places in the States are further along as far as having business brokers that are active and, and whatnot. Um, so I got into business brokerage and I joined up with a big international franchise chain uh, because they gave me access to a lot of this training to help facilitate me getting my designation. And I ran that business for three years. And being a business broker was one of the most interesting things that I'd ever done. I did it from uh, the end of 08 until the end of 2011. And it was also one of the worst businesses I've ever been involved with, with because of the cash flow involved in that business. So in North America, business brokerage is largely based upon the real estate model where you find a business owner that wants to sell. You prepare that business for sale. You prepare documentation. You go out and try to find a buyer. And once the deal happens, you collect a commission. And so here's the problem with that is that sometimes it can take you a year or two of talking to business owners before they decide to choose you to list their business for sale. And then once you have the business for sale, it can take, I mean, the fastest deal I ever did was about nine weeks. The longest deal I ever did was three years. One of the first businesses I signed up in 2008 was one of the last businesses I sold at the end of 2011. So I got out of that and I became a banker. And while I was, you know, doing my banking role, my, my phone kept ringing and these different people were calling me up because they'd been given my name and they were asking, Dave, I'm doing a deal. I need some help. I was given your name. And at first I told people, you know, I can't really help you. Um, but then one day this guy named Bob called and I had met Bob. He was a buyer that had come into my office and he said, Dave, I'm trying to get this deal done. And my, my attorney's telling me what I need to get out of the deal and my accountant's telling me what I need to get out of the deal, but neither seem to be able to really advise me on how to stick handle this negotiation and, and, and look at these things. Um, there's all kinds of nuances about looking at small privately controlled businesses that I'm sure we'll get into today. But I told Bob, I said, look, Bob, I've got a job. It's a full-time job. I can help you, but I'm not a broker. I'd have to, you know, work for you like a consultant or something. And he said, great, where do you live? I'll be at your house Saturday morning at nine. And that was the beginning of a little side hustle that grew over the course of a couple of years until eventually I, uh, the bank restructured. I took a package and I made it my full-time thing. And since that time, I've written books on the topic. I've got a YouTube channel and I work with people all over the world uh, basically people who see my videos online who are working on deals and want some help, they reach out to me. Um, and I work with them, either buyers or sellers, and help them do a deal, do realistic deals, and do expedient deals. Uh, because a lot of what is said about buying and selling businesses um, doesn't really align with what actually happens in the marketplace. Uh, because a lot of the stuff that you will find online is produced by people who have some point of view or interest that they're trying to to put forward in this in this whole sphere. Very, that's a great answer. That's one of one of the more you know high level informed answers I've heard to a question on this show. I mean, I'm glad you're here. I, I want to talk to you. I mean, really, no, that was that was like listening to someone with a brain lecture in front of a college classroom. Uh, honestly, <laughs> right? I, that's kind of a rare thing too. But yeah, yeah. Uh, what about the person sitting there saying, like, okay, look, man, if I could afford to buy a business, I wouldn't need business. <laughs> How much money does a person need to be able to invest in a business that's, you know, a business worth having, I guess? Yeah, sure. It's, it's That's a great question. The 
you know, there is a, a, a very loose rule of thumb that I've kind of realized uh, over the course of time that, that, that bears out a lot of the time. So basically, um, when we look at businesses, we're looking at a cash flow measure called seller's discretionary earnings. This is the total amount of money available to an owner operator that works full time in the business. And it works out that a lot of the time, if you have about 50% of that figure in, in liquid cash, you're probably going to be in a very good position, uh, considering down payment, closing costs, that kind of thing that might come up. Um, I'm a huge proponent of people being conservative and wise with their money. And so I don't like to see anyone put their last nickel into a deal. You always have to have some kind of reserve, et cetera. And so that 50% of SDE is, is usually a pretty good measure. So if you're going to buy a business that had a hundred thousand dollars of SDE and that, that doesn't mean a hundred thousand in your pocket, but let's, let's get that clear. That seller's discretionary earnings number out of that has to come a few things. Uh, that's the money that you take home. Uh, it's any taxes you have to pay to, to the government. Um, it's debt service has to come out of that as well as, um, any kind of return on the cash you put in and any sort of uh, capital reinvestment because the SDE number is related to EBITDA, which adds back non-cash expenses like depreciation and amortization, um, which, which is a way of looking at businesses, but it's not a realistic way of looking at businesses because machinery equipment do wear out and they need to be replaced. So that hundred thousand dollar SDE business, you know, you're not going to put that hundred grand in your pocket, but if you're going to buy a business of that size, if you have about 50 grand available, you're probably going to be able to do a deal. So, I mean, you mentioned that it follows the real estate market. I've seen plenty of advertisements on TV, buy real estate with zero down, you know, um, can you buy a business that way? Is there ways to do 100% financing on a business? And should somebody ever do that if it's if it's possible? Yeah, this is that's a great question. And if you start to type in things about buying a business online, you will be accosted with all kinds of advertisements from people who say that they can teach you how to buy a business even if you're broke. Here's Here's the reality is that, yes, there are actually – opportunities for people to buy businesses using no none of their own money. I'll give you I'll give you an example. Um once once I'm finished here. But but here is here's the reality is that um if somebody was going to buy a business with none of their own money, the seller would then be wondering, you know, you've got nothing invested in this. And a lot of the times what these guys propose is that you need to find a really motivated seller who's going to carry back or finance a large chunk of that business. Well, I've been involved in many deals where sellers have financed a large chunk of the transaction, sometimes even 50, 60, 70% of the transaction. But if they find out that the other 30%, for example, is coming from borrowed sources as well, then they know that you've got nothing in it. And so the question is, how secure is their investment in that note? If you don't have anything put into the deal. And so a lot of the times these guys. Well, not only that, let's say I do 70% seller financing, 30% uncle financed. If Mm -hmm. I have to choose who I'm going to pay, I'm going to pay my uncle or the seller. Right. Right. I'm going to pay the uncle, right? (laughs) Well, and, 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 you know, a lot of these systems that you'll find people talking about online, um, if you, 
a lot of the times you, you have to be able to read between the lines. So there's one book out there that gets promoted quite heavily in which a guy describes how he bought a business using none of his own money. But what he doesn't elaborate on is that he was already in business. And so if you have a strong, if you're already in business and you have a very strong balance sheet, you know, a very low uh, debt to equity ratio, and you go and you buy another business, if the bank looks at it as an expansion and they look at the combined entity, then together both of those businesses might support a loan that would effectively finance the acquisition of the second company. But they'll use stories like that and and say, see, you can do it too because I did it. And the truth is, is that a lot of the times when businesses are bought using no money, they're bought by people who have tremendously powerful other assets. And so the the lenders, the bankers, the people selling the business – can have a great deal of confidence in that person because they've got other resources. You know, a person. Yeah, I mean, just to make it an extreme extreme example, and and be like, well, duh. If Jeff Bezos wants to buy a business for no money down right now, he's going to be able to buy a business for no yeah. money down, right? Like, or Tim Cook, or you know, like you know, Elon Musk. If Elon Musk wants to buy, you know, Joe Blow's rocket propulsion systems and add it on to SpaceX, any bank on the planet is going to be here. You go. Yeah. And so when a when you go to buy a business from someone, seller financing is important because it does a lot of other things that help protect the buyer from risk. But that seller, when they make a decision to sell you the business and, and do some of the financing for you, they're not only wearing a business seller's hat, they then have to put on a banker hat and they have to think to themselves, is this person the right person? Are they going to be able to run this business effectively? Are they going to be coachable if I try to give them guidance and, and show them how to run the business properly? Are they going to listen to me? And so if they can't see you as an effective operator of the business or they don't necessarily believe in you, then they're not going to want to agree to those kinds of terms. So let me tell you the story of an actual no money down deal from a guy who didn't have any money to put in. So this is, uh, story comes from Alberta. It's a trucking company. So this guy starts working for the trucking company. And over the course of time, he moves up to various levels of jobs within the company. And after about five or six years, he became the manager of the company and became good friends with the, with the owner. When the owner decided he wanted to retire, the, the manager then said, well, I would like to buy the business, but I don't have any money. They went and spoke with the banker. The bank, and this story comes from the bank. It's a promotional piece that they put out. So it's nothing secret or anything like that. But the bank looked at the assets of the business. And said, we can give this business this big loan based on the assets you have. And what, so the business took the loan. The loan went out to the owner as a dividend. And what happened in that moment is now the business is leveraged up. So it's got a lot of debt in it, has very little equity value. And at that moment, the owner sold his shares to the manager and held that financing on that purchase. And so that manager was able to buy that business using none of his own money. But what he did have was the complete confidence of the seller and a track record demonstrating that he knew what he was doing in running the day-to-day operations of the business and the confidence of the banker who was on board with the whole deal from the very beginning. And so to think that you can take a course, read a book, learn some magical methodology, and then start cold calling people and create that kind of scenario is it's just not effective it doesn't really happen and i i be, first became aware of this issue with you know the the no money down kind of thing 
when I started to get contacted by people who found my YouTube channel and they would say, Hey, I've got these deals and I'm trying to find, you know, banks. I was told that I would be able to use these asset based lenders to do my deal. And that's when I realized that people were being brought into these programs and they were paying big money, Jack, like two, three, five thousand dollars to be in these programs. And, um, and they were told things like an asset based lender will lend based on the assets of the business. Well, I'm involved with asset-based lenders. Let me let me give you an example of financing. Let's say a pizzeria, okay? Jack, let's say you want to open a pizzeria. You buy a brand-new pizza oven. In that moment, you can probably finance the entire purchase, either with a loan or a lease, right, because it's a new piece of equipment. If I then bought the pizzeria from you and I wanted to use that oven as a piece of equipment, the bank might tell me that they're willing to finance, say, 75% of its fair market value, which is not the price you paid. So now the value comes down a little bit and the amount I'm able to finance comes down even further. When you get to these asset-based lenders, they're like the pawnbrokers of the commercial finance world where they will lend you a percentage, not of the fair market value, but of the orderly or forced liquidation value. And so that pizza oven that you might have paid $1,000 for that a couple of years later has a fair market value of seven fifty. To those lenders, they might be willing to lend me like 60% of 500. And so the, the value that is financeable erodes tremendously the further away we get from the uh, sort of more institutional lenders to the other lenders. And, you know, when I talked with this guy, he was on the impression that these people would just make him loans against this equipment, just like someone might make a bank might make a loan against a house. And the reality is, is that the market for real estate is such that houses are very liquid. It's easy for a buyer to get financing, et cetera. When you get into the world of small business, a lot of the times, if the small business isn't making any money and it faces liquidation, now we're talking about, you know, what an auctioneer can sell stuff for. So the value of equipment and machinery can really dissipate very quickly. And, and these are the kinds of nonsense stories that get spread around, unfortunately, that people get drawn into. Well, and I've seen a lot of what you describe with the manager type aspect happen. I, my, one of my former lives, I worked uh, with a lot of manufacturer rep firms. Mm-hmm. And one of the more successful ones, this is a, this firm probably ran $100 million in sales a year. Um, the guy that owned it was a dude named Al Festa, and he had a wine cellar worth more than my house. I mean, there's, there's a big money firm here, you know. It's kind of interesting. I was in my 20s managing his firm as a vendor, you know. Um, but he had three employees that were stellar, and all three of them were on a 10-year vesting uh, program where they basically – so he was basically giving away – him and his brother owned this firm – they were giving away to these three employees collectively about 30% of the, uh, the firm over a 10-year vesting. So one year you got a 1%, and two years you got okay. two. But you only got it if you stayed the full 10, didn't get fired, meet your contractual obligations, all of that. Like So you might be 5% vested, but you get terminated for breach of contract, you get nothing. Yeah. And I was like, that seems really generous. He goes, that's our, that's our retirement plan. Uh-huh. He goes, these three guys are being groomed to take over the firm. By the time my brother and I are ready to retire, they will collectively be 30% principals together in the firm. When they go to get financing to buy us out with a 10-year track record of working here, complete understanding of the operations of the business, already being principals of the business, they're just going to get the loan, we're going to get our money, and we're going to leave. Yeah. And I was like, that's freaking brilliant. 
right? And that's like that is a that's a, that story. I forgot about that is so long ago. But that's why you want to hang around with rich people <laughs> because you <laughs> learn shit like that in conversations, you know. Uh, so I think there is something to like you know maybe buying a business you've worked in. I, yeah. I think that there's a lot to that. Bankers love insiders, Jack. I mean, it's because the one of the big concern, like the only concern a banker ever has is, will I get the payments, right? And for to be able to lend money to someone who's been working in the business and running it, it makes that question so much easier to, to answer because they know that the person who's buying actually uh, has a track record of running that particular business. And believes in it. Yeah. Right, because it's one thing to buy a business that you're looking at a balance sheet on. It's another thing to buy a business you've spent 10 years working in. You know where the bodies are buried. You know the contracts mm -hmm. that are not going to come in. Like So when you're willing to extend your neck from inside, yeah, I think there's probably a lot of confidence there. Um, why should people maybe consider going this route and buying a business over starting one? Yeah, sure. So... You know, I think that when I work with buyers, I could probably put them into three kind of buckets. And so, number one, there's the people who are already in business and they are looking at growing uh, through acquisition. So they already own a business, they're already running a business, and they're looking typically for businesses just like theirs, usually in another state, another county, another city, so that they can grow geographically. And those buyers have real advantages. You know, I, I often use the example of like a, a roofing company. Uh, it's hard for a roofing company to double in their own market because they have to take the business away from competitors. But if they just go buy another similar roofing company in the next town, they all of a sudden double the size of the company. Well, that might mean that they get to buy shingles at 2% less. And now that both organizations have become more efficient. So that's one group. The second group would be your middle-aged people who have always had an entrepreneurial desire But they ended up working in corporate America, and now they're married. They've got kids maybe heading towards college. They've got a mortgage, and they're in a position now where they realize the risks of starting a business are so substantial that they just have too much to lose. And those people will eventually come across the idea that if they buy an existing business, they'll have the problem of sales, customers, and break-even point already behind them. And so they'll, they're very good buyers because typically they will have management experience in a bigger organization. A lot of the time, small businesses lack systems, organization, governance stuff. And people coming out of middle management positions or maybe the military, for example, retiring officer, they're coming out of organizations where systems, checklists, procedures, all that stuff is very common to them. And they can usually help make these businesses better when they buy them. And they usually have money. They've got equity, they've got savings, etc. The third group of buyers are people who for some reason have a barrier to high income. And so these might be people that didn't go to secondary education, or maybe they're new people in the country. They might even be professionals, but their credentials won't be recognized in their new home. And so they then are facing the choice of, do I go out there and work at a $15 or $20 an hour job Or do I buy a business, even though, you know, I might not be buying much more than a job, but maybe it's a six-figure job. And so those people are, are saying, yeah, I want to do something. But again, usually they don't want to make the risk of putting what resources they do have into something that's not going to work. The, the 
biggest reason people buy a business is to avoid startup, the startup period. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with a break-even chart. You know, you get a business started yeah. and you've got yeah. losses initially, and they say when you get to the break-even point, this is when you start to make money. In my yeah, I want to stop that real quick. Okay. No, that's when you stop losing money. When you make back you. all the money you lost <laughs> and yes. then make a dollar, now you start making money, right? <laughs> Precisely. And, and so the problem with those break-even graphs when people make them as part of a business plan is that they're, they're all predictions of the future. And we don't really know if you're going to hit that break-even point or when or how long it might take, you know. And so that's what you don't have when you buy an existing business because you've got the customers, you've got uh, the employees who already know what they're doing, the suppliers are already shipping stuff to that business. Everything is in place for it to carry on and with the proper deal structure. Remember I mentioned seller financing earlier. Um, I, I think that – You know, when you buy a business and you haven't paid for it entirely, then the seller has an incentive to make sure that they give you the training and expertise and guidance and coaching because they want you to be successful so they can collect the balance of their money. And there's that's, another that's incentive you, there. There's another incentive there. They're highly incentivized to not go out, create a competing business, and suck mm -hmm. away your customer base. Yeah. Right? Because then they're putting you under and they're not going to get any money from you. There. You know, that, that's a great point. Um, a lot of the times, non-compete, non-solicit agreements are part of this. And I've seen deals fall apart when sellers have not made buyers feel confident that this was not a problem. You know, like, like if somebody's going to retire and they're 70 years old, it's easy to believe that they're going to retire, right? If, if somebody, if a seller is 40 and they're hesitant about signing a non-compete, then well, it's easy for the buyer to worry that They're up to some kind of mischief, right? And the buyer and seller in this transaction have to trust each other. It's one of the one of the things that makes this so much different than, say, buying a house. A lot of the times when you buy a house, you never meet the other party. You know, the real estate agents deal with each other and with the other parties and stuff, and they keep you separate. When you're going to buy a business, you have to have an opportunity to get that relationship going because if, you know, the seller doesn't believe in you, Number one, they may not even want to sell the business to you because of concerns for employees and community and all that kind of thing. But they're certainly not going to agree to finance part of it if they don't trust you. And so there has to be a trust. At the same time, the buyer has to be able to trust the seller. There's so many things about a business that you cannot measure. You know, you buy a house, you hire a home inspector, you get, you know, someone to test the well water, that kind of thing. And you can, you can like definitively determine if there's a problem with the chimney, for example. Well, when you buy a business, you know, who measures the quality of the service that was last given to the most important customers, right? There's, there's just so many things that are qualitative. In fact, when people ask me, you know, like we talk about businesses all the time. Uh, let's define what that is because I have a very specific definition. I say that a business is where three things, people, capital in the form of machinery, money, and inventory, et cetera, and a place, either a physical location or a website or whatever, people, capital, and a place function together in a system to produce a cash flow. And so when you buy a business, you're buying the stuff, but you're also buying that system. And so uh, we'll often talk about goodwill, right? Right. 
So let's get back to Jack's Pizzeria. You know, Jack, let's say you had a pizza shop and it was very successful and you were making a hundred grand a year at that pizza shop. And I came along and you wanted to sell and we, you and I agreed that we would, I would buy it from you. Let's say I was going to pay you 250 grand for that pizzeria. If we added up the value of all the stuff in your pizzeria, your oven, your furniture, your pots and pans and your empty boxes and your inventory and all that kind of stuff, there might only be 50 or $60,000 worth of stuff in your pizzeria, but I'm paying 250. So what's the gap, right? If I'm only buying $50,000 worth of stuff. You're buying customer base. You're buying goodwill. You're buying brand. Yeah. Right? That, you know. that gap is called goodwill. And so when I buy that business from you on my balance sheet, it's going to say $50,000 of stuff and then $200,000 of goodwill. And those customers came to you over the course of time because of the service and the flavor of the pizza and the recipes and all that kind of stuff. If I go in there the day after I buy it and I change the sauce recipe and nobody likes it, overnight I will destroy the goodwill. And that, that kind of opens the door a little bit here into the risky side of what we're doing here. Yeah, you can do it to yourself if you're Coca-Cola in the 1980s too, right? Like, that. Oh, that's a great story. <laughs> that's, oh, my God. That's like if you're not old enough to remember that, it doesn't mean anything to you. If you're like 50 or older – Like that is one of the, like that is a point in your childhood you can look back to and go yeah I remember that right um, yeah that's an aside though um, what about people that kind of look at this and say well it's expensive I think you know you just used uh, qualitative I think quantitative is another thing like expensive is a relative term expensive compared to mm. what right well exactly I mean um, you know you can put a lot of money into starting something new and if it doesn't work. Then, then your investment's been lost. The, the nice thing about a business is that if it's, if it's profitable the day you buy it and you're a good steward and manager of that business, then at some point in the future, you're likely going to be able to sell it again. Um, there's always risk in business and, you know, anything could happen. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of great restaurants, for example, that probably had been around for a long time that maybe didn't survive through the, the whole pandemic and lockdowns and that kind of thing. And so even the most solid business does have some risks associated to it. But I think that if you buy something that is already functioning and already has a track record of profitability, then you're better off than the unknown. Well, and you can actually work that out too. Like if you know the cash flows of a business versus the annual expenses of a business, you know the you know historical profit. Like we said, there's ways you can screw that up, but – You can go into that if you are going to run the business the way it's been run, fairly confident if you look at the economic indicators around it, that you have that cash flow, and then what can you do to increase that? Where when you go in and you drop, you know, people say it's expensive to buy a business, go start one, right? Mm -hmm. Especially a, a, a physical business um, where you have to buy material, you have to acquire property. I mean, when we moved to Arkansas for a few years, I needed an office, Just finding a space to lease was a pain in the ass. And every, well, what are you going to do? Why do you, I mean, it's also I'm not cooking meth. Why do you care? You know, like I record a podcast. Well, what's it about? 
Uh, it doesn't matter, you know. It's it's it, it's not about how to steal money, so it's okay, you know. And like it was, well, this place doesn't work because you know the the ventilation system, and it was like a hissing noise generating, uh, you know. Like there was all kinds of things we had to do just to lease a space, and like we, it, I didn't have a requirement like I need X amount of square footage. Honestly, if it would have, if I could have found a ten by ten building, I would have worked, right? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, If you're trying to do a pizzeria, there's, okay, location, right? That's kind of important, right? And, like, okay, now you got to put a commercial kitchen in. Like, that's expensive. So I, I, I think that, like I said, expensive is a very relative term. It's also probably going to be easier to acquire at least some financing to buy an existing business versus go to a small business loan officer at a bank and say, I have an idea on paper. I would yeah. like to finance this. It's not that you can't. It's just harder. It, absolutely. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges that I, I see for a lot of startup entrepreneurs is that they'll have an initial plan and maybe they will qualify for financing as a startup um, with the right business plan. And, you know, if the if the lender agrees that their projections make sense and whatnot. But then once they get that loan, they get started. There's typically a a countdown that occurs usually about two years where now that they're no longer a new startup now they need a track record of two years of financial performance before they will the lender will look at them again for any other kind of financing and so you you better get it right otherwise uh, a lot of doors will be closed and you need to make it work for at least a couple of years before you can maybe do any kind of pivot that's going to require further investment there's another thing you just really made me think of there. So if I go start a brand new business and then next year, I've had a really great year and I want to buy a house and I'm going to get a mortgage now in my private life. I have a startup business that maybe doesn't even have a year of taxes behind it yet. Mm. Right. If I've bought a business, I have the entire track record of that business. You see what I'm saying? Like when I when I'm now I'm trying to borrow money in my personal world. Well, I've got a 25 year old business here. Yeah, I have a much stronger position in in leveraging debt, you know, intelligent debt because I'm not big on you know spending money on stereos on credit. But when you you're talking like a, a home, most people just can't go out and you know hand over five bitcoins and buy a house, right? They, they end up having to, to finance some portion of a home. And honestly, for what you can finance a home today, I think if you pay cash for it, you're probably making a bad financial decision, right? I, I, I think that that money can work for you over that time harder than you have to work to, to service the debt. Um, and so I think that there's – I really never thought of that until today, but there, there is definitely that now – And, and I'm also an employee in this long-term business as well, possibly. I'm paying myself you know, on payroll and I'm taking dividends. Yeah, it, you know, especially if your banking relationship is with the, the place that knows the business. You know, uh, a lot of the times the, the, the banker that is doing business with that business that is being sold, uh, if they know that account and they've had a relationship with that business for a long time, um, they will want to be a part of the deal uh, because they know that the business is a good one. They, you know, they've seen the 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 in, you know the money flowing in and out for years and years and years often. Well, and especially if I've grown revenues, let's yeah. say I come in and I buy you know your business, and I you've worked with this banker forever, and they know your historical revenues, and I go in and go, 
in the first 12 months, I grew revenues by 28%. They'll, they'll give me as much money as they would have given you for sure, right? I mean, like, so if you hit a home run, it only gets more powerful that way. Um, what about the people that are thinking more of a passive business ownership? Like they want to buy a business, but they want to keep their job or something like that. Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've worked with people over the years who've, who've done that. And really it comes down to this. Um, number one, you need to know something about the business you're buying. So if you consider, you know, like a gas station near your house, like maybe there's an Exxon gas station and there's a whole bunch of them. Well, every gas station uh, that's part of a chain is going to have a manager. But the people at Exxon and head office don't let that manager run the business any way they like and then just wait for the financial statements at the end of the year, right? The, that manager in that location is reporting to someone like a district manager, right? And that district manager is giving oversight over many locations. And they're looking at different numbers and they're looking at the performance. And if something seems wrong, they're going to talk to that manager and they're going to try to work it out. When you buy a business in a more passive facility, like a more passive aspect, and you want to be working your day job and just kind of keeping an eye on other people over there doing the work, that district manager competency is the one you have to develop. And so you have to know what it is that you're keeping an eye on all the time. You have to know what numbers are important. You have to know, uh, be able to see what's going on in, over there and understand that things are being managed properly. And so if you don't know anything about that industry, it's going to be very difficult for you to learn those competencies. Um, I've had a lot of experience with people who will come and look at a business I have for sale, like a, like a fried chicken franchise, for example. And, you know, they've never worked in a fast food restaurant. And, you know, I'll ask them, like, what do you think it's going to be like when you own it and manage it? You know, and I'll challenge some of them, like, why don't you go work in one? You know, if you go to any McDonald's and tell them you're willing to work Saturday night, they'll hire you because teenagers don't even want to work on Saturday night, right? And you can figure out what working and owning a fast food restaurant might be like. Well, um, if you buy a business that is more readily systematizable, so this is something that you might see a chain or a franchise kind of set up doing, Um, it doesn't have to be a, a franchise or, or anything like that, but that kind of industry where you can get processes and procedures in place, it's going to be more of a business suited to an absentee owner, but then you have to figure out how am I going to keep an eye on what's going on over there, and you're going to have to develop for yourself a whole series of, of systems and processes and procedures, including you know regular visits to inspect the place. Um, you know you're going to have to have access to the sales information. With, with all these online tools like POS systems that, that are like SaaS based where you can log in from away and see what the sales are in a business in a given day, these tools are all helping people do this more and more. Um, but that's the challenge of the absentee owner. I'll often see businesses advertised as absentee operated. And when I look into it with a buyer, what I'll find is a transmission shop, let's say, where the owner worked there for 30 years. And then they left the place in the hands of their manager, and now they're in Florida, but they're still on the phone with the manager and logging into their systems a couple hours a week. It's very easy for that person to be an absentee manager of the of the transmission shop because they already know the business inside and out because they used to be the person there every day. And, and they've developed that competency of what to keep an eye on when they talk with their manager. Whereas if I bought the transmission shop and tried to do that, 
it would be hard for me. It would be very easy for that manager to start letting things slide without me being fully aware of problems that were growing in the business. I think a lot of that would have to do with is the business managed that way in the first place. I would be really leery. Let's say I went in to buy a transmission shop, a restaurant, doesn't really matter. And this is a place where the guy that founded it worked there 20 years. He's selling it to me now. And 20 years down the road, he still turns the lights out. Um, a guy I can tell you I know personally from that is, is the gentleman that owns uh, the Yingling Brewery. Uh, I went to high school with his daughter. He's in his 80s now. He bought the brewery from his father in 86 or 85. Um, today, he will be the last person out the door tonight. He will be the last person to leave uh, the office. I wouldn't want to run that business without him in it. I don't know. I, it might be fine, but I don't know what's going to happen to it when the guy that's been that dedicated for that many years walks away, that's mm. been at the helm for that long. If I, the business was run by somebody who was running it very passively, you know, kind of running it, it puts together a board of directors or whatever, and they meet monthly and quarterly, and that's how that business is being run now, I'm interested in possibly stepping into a role that way. But if you're taking someone that fired up the pizza oven every morning for 20 years out of the business, and you're not going in there to fire the pizza oven up every morning, that scares me, honestly. You know, this is a big topic whenever I do presentations to, to business owners, is, is I'll say, if you're that kind of person, maybe the light's on in the morning, the light's out at night, when it comes time to sell, um, the price of a business is, and, and whether or not it sells is determined by two questions. The first question is, what is the cash flow? The second question is, does the buyer believe they can continue that cash flow under their stewardship? So if you're in there every day doing everything, the length of time it will take to sell the business could be longer because the only person that can buy it is your clone who's 20 years younger, someone who has similar experience already. You know, to, to use the roofing analogy again, if you're the 65-year-old roofer and everything's in your head and you don't have any systems procedures, methods, etc., then you're going to be looking for the 40-year-old roofer that wants to own his own business because they're going to have some of that stuff in their head already. Ideally, what you want is you want systems and processes and everything in place so that some other person, you know, the guy who wants to get out of his bank job can come and see, oh, so you, this is how you measure the roof and this is how it estimates the material and the labor and this is how we quote it and this is our margin and, you know, this is our suppliers and this is how we order from them and, you know, all, like if it's all systematized and there's an operational system, then the banker can see how he could take over because he can use a tape measure, right? That is going to expand the field of buyers. And I know we're talking about buying today, but this is a huge conversation that I have when I'm talking to business owners. No, I completely agree with that. And, and it also, like, it shows like a weakness of my business. I'm, I don't ever see myself selling TSPC. I am TSPC. And when mm. I created this, I knew that's what I was doing. I never tried to build this. You know, one of my good friends, Brian Black, over at ITS Tactical, we kind of built our businesses parallel to each other. He started about right at one year after me. And I said, you know, about two or three years into it, you'll have a much larger business than I will. And he's like, really? You think so? I'm like, yeah, because you want one. You want 10 employees. You want a yeah. facility, right? You want, I did that. <laughs> I cashed out of that. I'm done with that. I want to do something that I enjoy doing for the rest of my life. But if I was trying to build, you know, some sort of media empire that I could sell off, 
then I would have a totally different business model. I certainly wouldn't be the only host, right? Mm -hmm. And and I would be building a systematized podcasting network if I wanted to sell it. Because if you buy this business right now, I I don't know what's going to happen to it, and you don't either, right? I, I really don't think it works that well. I think, you know, the primary business model being a membership that does pay for itself there's probably a good five years or more cash flow there. But I think it's without me doing this every day, unless, like you said, you're my clone or you're better than me at this, it's a declining cash flow. It's, it's you're, buying, you're buying a cash flow to the ground versus a sustainable and growable business. The, the analogy, I think, Jack, would be someone, for example, a life insurance agent or financial planner who takes – a partner under their wing for a number of years so they get to meet all the clients so the goodwill can really transfer. And Yeah, that would then work. If I got a co-host and I groomed my yeah. co-host, yeah, sure. Yeah, but it would it would be a multi-year thing, and the audience would have to get to know that other person and, and be willing to accept them after your departure. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, when you're doing a personality-based business, that's difficult, even if the person's good. See, now you're going to get your inbox flooded with people. Yeah, I want to be that person. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm, I, I've been enjoying this one-man show thing for quite a while. Um, what, what about the, uh, the risk level? What is, what is the real risk when it comes to investing in a small business? Yeah. So, so here's the uh, – I see people make this, this mistake all the time where they'll say, okay, here's the cash flow available, and then they'll say, well, how much can I borrow? And then they'll they'll overcommit the cash flow to debt service, for example. And the problem with businesses is that they are asymmetrical systems, which, and it, it varies depending on the business, but what this means is that a 10% decline in total sales or revenue is going to be usually a much larger percentage decline in profit. And it depends on the ratio between the direct expenses of the business and the overhead expenses. So if, if I sell fuel oil and my, my margin is a couple points, um, if I have a 10% decline in my revenue, I'm going to have a very low decline in my profits. But if my cost of goods sold is, um, if my, if my cost of goods sold, um, is like a, a very, Oh, sorry, I've got myself backwards here. It is very common for a business that has big overheads. If you have a, like, say, a 10% drop in revenues at a restaurant, you know, and you've got rent and you've got labor and a bunch of things you can't cut, well, that 10% decline in your revenues could be a 40% drop in your profits at the end of the year. The reverse is also true, and this is what attracts people into business because they say, wow, if I could push my sales up by 10%, I can double my profits because my overheads don't change, right? And and that's the riskiness of it is the business itself is a giant lever uh because of what you, you know, what you're able to do. The people get drawn into things like pizza. Um you know, if you think about a pizza that you get delivered at your house, it might cost you $20. If you look at it, you know that out of your own kitchen, you can make the thing for two, right? This is why people get into the pizza business. They think that there's a huge profit. What they don't fully realize is that you only make $18 after you've sold a couple thousand pizzas every month because of all of the overhead that is kind of fixed that has to be covered. Now that, that, that 
completely makes sense. And I think that, like, you know, you're getting into a situation, it's a lot like money itself. It's mm. a sword. And, and the more money you have, if you don't have your shit together, the more damage you can do to yourself. And so the bigger the business you invest in, if you don't have your shit together, the more you can destroy your life and the lives of other people. Like I'd rather, I'd rather an incompetent person buy a quick car location than like a company that employs 10,000 people. Yeah. I mean, it can be really, really bad in a lot of ways. And I think that's, you know, that's why people ruin their lives when they win the lottery. It's the same kind of philosophy. Um, what are the most common mistakes people make when they're buying a business? Because that, I'm sure, is a deep can of worms. Yeah, so, so I already mentioned overcommitting to, uh, to debt service. So people will um, take on more debt or on a more aggressive payment um, amortization than they really should. Um, the other thing is undervaluing their own labor. So remember how I said that businesses are valued, small businesses are valued on a multiple of sellers' discretionary earnings? Well, that includes your labor. And so a lot of the times people will not properly value their own time. And so when, when I work with people and we look at that SDE number, one of the things we always look at is what would be the fair market value of your time here working here if you were hired by a stranger to be the manager of this business, right? Because if you're going to be working for yourself, you are entitled to that amount of money. Now, how much is left? What are we really working with as far as our debt service and taxes and capital reinvestment, et cetera? People will tend to um, downplay their own needs, especially if they get excited about the business. That's one of the things that, of course, sellers and brokers try to do is they try to get people excited about it. You know, people make purchasing decisions because of emotions. And they'll, you know, if you get this daydream in your head that is very, very exciting about what it's like to be the owner of the business, you can start to do things that are not necessarily in your favor. And the things that, that fuel into this, you know, other common mistakes are not seeking out the right advice, not learning how to properly, you know, evaluate what a business should sell for. Um, and, and that might sound funny to people who are not involved in this industry because it's really hard for you to ask double for your three-bedroom home than what it's really worth because it's very easy for people to figure out what other people are paying for three-bedroom homes in your town. But when it comes to the world of business, it's probably the one, of the most, one of the most opaque markets that there is. There are comparable databases, but they're not publicly available. And a lot of the data that's in those databases contain errors or they're statistical outliers that a professional can spot and disregard. And so it's very common for me to work with a buyer who, who hires me to look at a, a business with them and find the business is overpriced by double or more. And the seller really doesn't often even know that they're asking way too much for the business. Uh, a lot of the times these things are driven by um, aspirational needs. So, you know, I actually had instance where uh, a seller in Ohio was really pressed, you know, why are you asking this amount of money? And the answer ultimately was because that's what it costs for the house I want in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think valuation is a really, it's almost a mystical world. Like there are some concrete things that we can put down into the valuation of a business, but a lot of it is really subjective. There, basically, here's the formula. It's what is the cash flow and what is the risk associated with this industry? So I'll give you a quick example. Um, if we have Jack's Pizzeria and Dave's Septic Pumping Business, 
and both of them are earning $100,000 a year of, of discretionary cash flow. If I go looking in the different databases of past transactions that I have, I might find that pizzerias are selling for 2.2 times that SDE. So your business is worth 220000 But I might also find that septic pumping business sell for four times SDE. So my business is worth 400000 even though the cash flow is identical. And the reason why those two different industries would have different measures is because the pizzeria business is considered more risky by all the buyers who bought before us. Uh, and it makes sense, right? I mean, you got more competition, it's lower barriers to entry, people are more price sensitive. Whereas in the septic field, you know, you got the big capital investment to buy the machinery, the big truck, you've got all the licensing, permits, training, you know, environmental hazards, all that kind of stuff, insurance probably. Um, and there's less competition. And there's less price sensitivity because, uh, you know, if a person has to call the septic truck every second year, for example, to, to clean the septic tank at their home, uh, they may not even remember what they paid last time. But a, a regular, you know, pizza customer, they know what they paid last week. And if the price suddenly changes, that can give them, you know, a reason to you know, question whether they should be going to the same place again. And so those are the types of things we look at um, when we're evaluating a business to try and see what other people before us have determined was the riskiness. And we use multiples because the multiples hold over the course of time and they also hold, you know, in different markets. So, you know, the, the rent in a small town is going to be lower than the rent in a big city, but in a big city, there's more traffic. Maybe the same business would have more sales. At the end of the day, when we look at the earnings and what people are willing to pay, those multiples still tend to line up, whether the business is in the big city or the small town. And over the course of time, of course, we have inflation, right, changing our numbers, um, but the multiples still seem to hold steady. And so it is a pretty good system of figuring out, you know, what people are willing to pay. The the other big thing that I will that I'll caution all the listeners on is if you want to learn about this stuff, you really have to pay attention to what size of business people are talking about. Uh, so most of my stuff is about what we call Main Street businesses. These are businesses with a cash flow under half a million a year. And, you know, a lot of the times they're owner-operated and, you know, they've got a staff and they're, they're the businesses you think about when you're driving around. You could be listening to a podcast where someone's describing a transaction where someone is buying or selling a business. But if they're talking about, what I would call mid-market businesses, something with revenues of 30 or 50 million, the rules in that game are completely different than the rules in the Main Street space. And there are, you know, the, the line in the sand, that half a million dollars of cash flow, once a business goes beyond that, the rules change significantly because then you get private equity groups and private capital and private investors and all this kind of thing. And the cost of capital changes, the availability of cash changes, and the multiples that people pay for those business also change. And so uh, it's really important that you pay attention. Uh, for example, there's a book out um, by Harvard Business Review, and it's called uh, The HBR Guide to Buying a Small Business. And a lot of the times people will buy that book and they'll ask me questions from that book. And I keep having to point out that if you look at the introduction, the authors of that book, you know, and that they're from the world of big business. They're at Harvard, right? Um, in the introduction of that book, they describe a small business as having 10 to 15 million in revenue. Well, that's not what I would call a small business. Those guys are in a, in a different kind of category, what I would call the lower middle market. Yeah, I and agree. So, I agree. Completely. Yeah. That's, that's insane. 
Yeah. So it's it's important to to just be aware of where the space that you're in and that the stuff that you're learning is is in alignment with the space you want to learn about. Yeah, and I think like one of the other things that probably causes trouble with the whole valuation thing is because I've seen it in real estate, which is much less subjective, right? Mm. Um, people get emotionally attached to what yeah. they think their thing is worth. Like I've I've had houses I've looked at, like this is a great house, but just looking at what the guy's asking for it, he's not in touch with reality, and I'm I'm not even going to make an offer here because. If I were dumb enough to give him what he's asking, I would never get the financing approved. Mm. And I'm not here to, to deal with his, you know, if it's a really great place and I really want it, I might come in and do a lowball offer and, and, you know, use the appraisal as a, as a sword, so, so to say. But usually in those situations, I, I just, I'll find something else because this person is, they're not selling a house. They're selling a place they lived for 40 years. And with yeah. a business, I can imagine a person selling a place they worked for 40 years. So their valuation is sometimes, I'm guessing at times, not in touch with reality. I don't know that that's going to matter because if there's any financing going on in there, that's going to get worked out in the valuation. It's, it, you know, that emotionality is a big player. The, the place where I see it the most is when people start a business. And as you know, you can get started in a business and the first period of time is very meager before you you know start making any money and people will work in a business for a couple of years without really taking home much of any kind of paycheck and then they'll achieve a level of success and things will be better for them and they'll have a good income and then when they go to sell they get this idea that this is when they get paid for all those years they put in where they weren't earning any money and the buyer has to compensate them for all that But what the buyer is buying is what the cash flow is in the present moment. It's what the business is today. And a lot of the time it's, it's, it's emotional stuff that the seller has to get over. And if they don't meet the right professional to help them understand, you know, what it's really worth, they can get out there with an, with a price that's too high. And the saddest thing that I ever see for sellers is that they'll, they'll burn through the, what I, you know, what I call the, the real or the honest buyers. So the buyer who has an interest in that business type, they've got money in the bank, they've got good credit, they've got access to capital. They have an idea of what the business should be worth based on, you know, learning stuff online, reading, etc. Um, and they make an offer on that business and the seller says no. And, and then they lose the opportunity to actually make a fair deal. They might meet people like, like who are willing to accept their high price. But as you point out, Jack, Once that buyer, who, who as well maybe doesn't know what they're doing, once they get to the banker, the banker will simply explain why the deal doesn't work and it, it just won't happen. And the saddest thing is when you see someone trying to do that for years and years and maybe it gets out that the business is for sale. This is almost always done confidentially. But if the employees and the other people in the community start to hear that it's for sale, now you can start to have revenue drops. You can start to have earning declines. The The enthusiasm and energy of the owner starts to wane after the business has been on for sale for a while. And then the business really does become worth less. And the saddest thing is when they close. Well, yeah, and I imagine there's a lot of potential buyers that once they've assessed that and realized that what's being asked is unreasonable, they're moving on. To, like, somebody's going to mm -hmm. buy a business, they're, they're looking to buy a business. They're not like, 
It's not like you go to the store. I don't really need a Lululemon tractor, but oh, look, it's pretty. It's green. I want. I want to buy it, right? Like it's. It's like you. You've made a conscious decision. So if I'm if I'm talking to David and David wants to sell his freaking business, and I realize David is just basically being targeted about the value of his business, I'm going to do something else. I'm not coming back. Like if you call me in three weeks and say, hey, the you know my client, the seller, David, he's realized he overvalued his business. Are you still interested? Odds are no. Right, I've 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 gone off and I'm I'm now looking at something else. I'm looking to do something else. Like I'm writing that off. Where like if you're selling a house, you can be stupid for a while, and eventually when you price your park your house at the market, somebody will probably buy it. And and I, I think you can you can hurt yourself a lot more on the selling side. But on that note, we keep kind of dancing around real estate. Um, yeah. The the number one way people become millionaires in the United States is real estate. And so the person that's got some money or is able to acquire financing, if they're making a decision between investing in a business that has to function, run, operate, versus investing in properties that can simply be rented out and acquire equity, you know, which one of those is really a better investment? Well, I think the the key here is that they're both entirely different classes of asset. So as you pointed out, you know, you can buy a piece of real estate. Income property, small apartment building. And, you know, most people will manage that property in a few hours every month. You know, maybe they'll do some of the work themselves to, for maintenance or maybe they won't. But it's something that people do as an investment typically, where most of the time when people are buying a business, they've got two hats on. They've got their investor hat on and their job seeker hat because most of the time in the space I deal with, People are buying a business because they want to be in there as the full-time owner-operator. And so they they look at it from the investment point of view, but they're also looking at how it's going to impact their day-to-day life. Um, a lot of the times, it's quality of life. You know, it's it's funny because a lot of people that I talk to will assume that people go looking to buy a business because they want to be rich. It's actually not the most common motivation. I, I meet a lot of people who just want to get out of – uh, I, I guess you'd call it a rat race scenario, you know, where they get up really early because they have a long commute and they work long hours and they never see their kids and they get home late at night and they tuck their kids in and, they, and rinse and repeat. And that, you know, their aspiration is to get out of that, even if they have to take a, an income cut so they can run a fly fishing lodge in Colorado or something like that, right? They, they really want to make a change. They want to have control over their life. They want to, um, and, you know, you talk about this on your podcast. They want to have greater resiliency control and be able to make decisions that affect themselves. The riskiest thing about being an employee is that you have 100% of your income coming from one source. And when you become a business owner, you now have income diversification because you have many, many different customers. And because you're the one that's in charge, you get to make decisions if you have to make a pivot, change, introduce a new product, service, etc., Look at all the ways that business owners innovated in the pandemic lockdown. You know, the people who were forced to close by government mandate, a lot of them were able to make changes to keep some degree of cash flow running through their business, um, even, you know, w- without the, even with the rules in place that uh, prevented them from doing business the way they normally did. So if somebody's going to buy 
a small business? Are there some skills they should have? I mean, obviously, if you're buying a business that does mechanical work on cars, you should probably have some mechanical knowledge. I'm talking maybe a little bit more broad, a little bit more generalized. Any business or certain skills that you should have if you're going to be an owner, operator, investor? Yeah, I, I, I'm a firm believer that you should not get into owning or running a business unless you have some degree of experience or knowledge in in running a business. And my my big advice to a lot of people is try to get paid to learn these skills. So if you have a job today that you're not necessarily happy with, you know, try to move yourself up a level, try to get into a position where you are in charge of something like the PL of your department or your division, or at least get yourself into something like sales, where there's um, a need for you to get out of your shell and go talk to people and and learn how to make customers happy. Ultimately, sales and revenue generation are always going to be backstopped by the owner of a small business. And so those are critical skills, and if you can learn them on the job somewhere, you're going to be much further ahead. And if people want to learn more about you, do you have any resources or anything that you want to kind of talk about here at the end? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I've got a book. Um, it's it's uh, called 21 Stupid Things People Do When Trying to Buy a Business. And it's available on Amazon and as Audible and stuff. But, uh, if, Jack, I'd like to share a special link with your audience. We can put it in the notes where people can download the PDF copy for free. And if people are interested in this kind of thing, um, if you head over to my blog site at davidcbarnett.com or just look me up on YouTube or any of the podcast apps, um, I've been answering one question every week since 2014 about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. And I've also had people on for interviews and stuff. So if this is something that interests you, there's literally you know hundreds of hours of stuff there that you're more than welcome to help yourself to. And so I'll make sure that uh, when we wrap up here, I get that link for the PDF book, which I think everybody should download and take a look at. Uh, I'll make sure there's a link to your website. And then you have uh, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. I'll make sure those are all in the show notes as well today. And I really appreciate you uh, reaching out on this subject. Like I said, it's it's one we, we've talked a lot about entrepreneurship as, as a whole. I think maybe we've actually discussed this as a concept maybe one other time in 13 mm. years. And it's, it really is an option that a lot of people need to explore. I think as you pointed out today, a lot of times people that are maybe, you know, if you're 22 years old and you want to start a business, go start a business, right? I mean, just go take all that piss and vinegar you have when you're that age, when you can work 19 hours a day and you can actually not fall over and die and you can afford to lose money because you don't have any money. Sure. But, you know, if you're 45 and you've had a pretty good career and you have some money put away, but you don't want to, like, spend another 20 years working for somebody else, I think this is really a hell of an option for a lot of people. And I also always try to say to people, like, think about that guy I talked about, Al Festa, with, with, with his rep firm. Like, there are jobs you can take that train you to own a business one day. And some of them are actually a path to owning the business you work in. Uh, we had a guy on earlier this year about manufacturer rep firms. That's the number one place I've seen it. I, I, I you know, they, they, the, the guys that own it, that founded it, or maybe the second or third owners, and some of these things are, some of these firms are a hundred years old now, and they're looking for people they can groom to buy their firm one day. That is, there's literally like, if I find the right people, I make a ton of money from them. And then they're my exit strategy. So there are ways to do this and to kind of prime the pump for it as well. So I uh, really appreciate you uh, reaching out and uh, having this discussion with us today, David. 
Awesome, Jack. I, I'm really glad that you invited me on and uh, had a great time talking with you in the audience. All right, I told you that'd be a great discussion. Um, really, really smart guy. You can tell this is someone that's mastered his his work. Uh, he he's been doing this again twenty years, and he sounds like he's been doing it twenty years. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you one of the ways you can help support this show: do your online shopping where tspaz.com. That's T S P A Z. Tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com. No matter what you buy, you help support us. Uh, as long as you start your shopping there. So it's really a painless way to help support the Survival Podcast. Today's item of the day is another one I just had around, but it's on sale again. The Nesco NPC-9 Smart Pressure Canner. This used to be known as the Carry Shard Pressure Canner. They're all the same thing. If you're worried about using an electric pressure canner, let me give you one word response to that worry. Don't. Don't read an article written by somebody from nine years ago before there were any electric pressure canners telling you not to use an electric pressure canner. This is the best way I can say for the average person to get into pressure canning that there is. It works flawlessly, and if it's not set up right, it won't start the cycle. It has a ton of different safety features built into it. I would tell you it is safer. It is absolutely safer than a typical pressure canner, your old school pressure canner. And it does a bunch of other really cool stuff, too. It's also a slow cooker. You can braise and brown with it. You can you can pressure cook with it. You can do all the stuff with it, and it just flipping works. And it's normally about 130 bucks. It's on sale right now for $80. Yeah, $80. That is a huge discount. Everybody I know that owns one of these loves it. Absolutely loves it. Um, I love mine so much. I had a great big uh, all-American pressure canner, kind of the gold standard. I, I bartered it after I got this. $80? bucks. are you kidding? I almost bought another one. Now, here's the catch. They're not in stock, and they're not shipping till September. But at 80 bucks, if you've had this on your want list, get it. And September, October is a good time to do a lot of canning. Just saying, going into hunting season and everything, right? So, so uh, consider getting one of these. If you don't own one, you want one. And if you are in any of our communities, like Discord or Telegram or MeWe or whatever, and you're talking to people in our groups, ask any, ask any if anybody has it, and then ask them what they think about it, and then you will go buy one. Um, I'm going to tell you, I think what's going on is they're doing a new stocking run. They're selling them cheap, to, and when this stocking run comes in, it's going to go back up to $120, bucks. Um, so, you know, this is a time of, you know, things all in inflation and all that going on, that if you can get something cheap um, and you want it anyway, and it's something that doesn't go bad, you're not buying taco shells here, guys. This is a lifetime purchase. Get it while you can at this price. All right, with that, let's wrap things up. Uh, again, reminder, MSB on sale. Give me 30 is the discount code, 30 bucks a year. And let's talk about our song of the day today. Um, I've been enjoying this week sharing Jimmy Buffett songs with you you probably never heard. Today's one is going to be, it's kind of, I would call it a borderline song for Jimmy of like well-known Jimmy Buffett music and completely unknown Jimmy Buffett music like I've been playing. It's right in that kind of crossover place. It did make it onto the uh, Ballads, Bars, Beaches 4 CD set, right? So it did make it there. It's the only one this week that it made it that far. But I'm gonna, I'll tell you, most people have never heard this. And if you have heard it, you may have heard the original version 
It was written and first performed by a guy that you may not, may or may not recognize his name, but when I, I tell you a little bit more about him, you're going to be, oh, that guy, Steve Goodman. Steve Goodman wrote this song. It's called California Promises. It's an incredibly beautiful song. And with all due respect to Steve Goodman, who I think has been gone for like 30 years now, left us that long ago, uh, Jimmy's version is so much better. It is absolutely a beautiful piece of music, beautiful vocals, beautiful guitar. And this is a deep, heartfelt song about basically two lovers, and the woman leaves and says, wait for me, but she never comes back. But the guy never stops waiting. And that's the song in a nutshell. It's not a very complex song. It's a beautiful song. But who is Steve Goodman? Now, you might know a song... That if you, if you hung out in country bars, I would say in the 80s and the 90s, you probably got drunk and sang along to it, called You Never Even Call Me By My Name. Made very, very famous by, of all people, David Allen Coe. Incredibly rambunctious, little bit raunchy song. And there's a line in it toward the end where he says, you know, uh, this, this song was written, uh, was written to me, uh, sent to me by a friend, named Steve Goodman, who said he had written the perfect country and western song. And I wrote him back a letter, and I said it was not the perfect country and western song, because he hadn't said anything about trains or trucks, prison, getting drunk, or mama, right? Like, like there was something like that, right? And then he sat down and wrote another verse of that song. He sent it back to me, and I realized my friend had written the perfect country and western song. The last verse goes like this here. And that song, again, rambunctious, rowdy, loud, drunk cowboys and, and cowgirls has been sung in thousands of honky-tonks. You've probably heard it if you've ever hung out in one, especially in the 90s, like I said. That's when it really seemed to hit its zenith. It's just interesting to me. That the guy that wrote that song wrote this song. And I find it kind of perfect then for a guy like Jimmy Buffett who wrote songs like Why Don't We Get Drunk and Screw? And then, you know, turns around and writes a song like Little Miss Magic or He Went to Paris to pick up music from a guy that kind of wrote in that same, you know, extreme dichotomy of, of worlds, that extreme split. Anyway, if you've never heard this song, I think you're really going to enjoy it. Jimmy Buffett with Steve Goodman's California Promises. Beneath the moonlit sky Shadows walk beside the water Sad goodbye Whispered on the shore Hear those wind chimes play They serenade the shadow of Ring and fade away Like California promises I will never love another Be 